You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org.
scripture reading, verses 1 through 14, is a list of Proverbs. This is better than that, uh, and it is a combination of wisdom. And he gives us those Proverbs at the beginning of chapter 7, sort of a rapid-fire succession of Proverbs, in order to kind of introduce us to this idea of wisdom. So wisdom now is in the second half of the book. So we have despaired of human wisdom, human philosophy, human reason, and human rationality in the first six chapters, so that we might embrace the divine wisdom of how to live in this sin-cursed fallen world that he presents in the last six chapters. Now these verses between, at the end of chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, some people say that these verses are a summary of the first six chapters. Other people say that these verses introduce the wisdom of the last six chapters. So are they a summary or are they an introduction? I don't think we have to choose between the two, though, because I think Solomon is doing both of these things. He is showing us how in the first six chapters he has brought us to despair, and he is summarizing now all the things that we see in the first six chapters, so that in the last six chapters he can walk us through the path of wisdom. And it's not to say that in the last six chapters that everything is positive. It's not to say that we escape from the references to vanity or under the sun or futility and striving after wind. All of that is still there. Solomon never escapes the, the, the oppression of vanity or the realization of death. So those things are still there. But now the emphasis is on how do we live in a world where these realities exist? How do we live in a world that is cursed by sin? How do we live in a world that seems vain? How do we live in a world from God's perspective as opposed to man's perspective? So the last six chapters are advice and counsel and wisdom, the emphasis being on dealing with life as he has described it in the first six chapters. But we're not, and, and the goal of the last six chapters is to drive us to that final conclusion at the end of chapter 12. This is the full duty of man to fear God and to obey him. This applies to every person because Solomon says at the end of the book, ultimately we need to live our lives now in light of the judgment to come. And that is true wisdom. So if you live according to human folly and human reasoning and human wisdom and life under the sun, you reach despair. It is far better to live life in this world embracing God's wisdom, God's path, and God's perspective because ultimately he's going to bring every work into judgment. Even, even though we have all of these unanswered questions, ultimately we have to live in light of the judgment that is to come. So a sober, wisely lived life is what Solomon is driving at in the second half of the book. But we're not to chapter 12 yet, unfortunately for some of you. We haven't even been to chapter 7 yet. We have to deal with these last three verses of chapter 6, which serve two purposes, as I mentioned earlier. One, to summarize everything in chapter, the first six chapters, and second, to introduce us to the last six chapters. He has driven us to despair in human wisdom, in a pursuit of meaning in human wisdom, so that we might embrace divine wisdom. Solomon has been trying to create in us a thirst for God's truth and God's wisdom so that we might see the despair of humanity and what humanity has to offer in explaining life under the sun and that we may then embrace what God says about living life under the sun even though we live in a sin-cursed, fallen, vain, futile, useless world. Okay, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. So we've reached kind of a transition point and probably the best way to the best way to handle these verses is to see it as uh, summarized under four statements that Solomon is going to give us. So we're going we're to work through the passage and I'm going to show you that Solomon is making four statements all of which serve to do these two things. To summarize the first six chapters and to introduce us to divine wisdom in the beginning of chapter 7. So here are the four statements. You see these in verses 10 through 12. Number one, nature is fixed. It is fixed. 
Second, resistance is futile. I don't mean any kind of Star Trek reference there for those of you who are geeking out over that. Nature is fixed, resistance is futile. Third, life is short, and fourth, the future is unknown. Nature is fixed, resistance is futile, life is short, and the future is unknown. And you can see that all of those things are sentiments that are expressed in the first six chapters. If you've been with us, those all sound familiar. And so a lot of the language of these verses is going to sound very, very familiar to you. So let's begin with verse 10. Nature is fixed. Chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. Okay, so the nature is fixed is expressed in the first part of that verse. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. Nature is fixed. Uh, in Jewish culture, the idea of naming something uh, kind of carried the idea that you, it, it kind of was tied to the idea that you, if you name something, you had authority over it. You had the right to rule it. You knew something of its character and its nature because its character and its nature were fixed, and you had discovered it, and you knew it well enough to name it. And so, for instance, in the creation account, and this, this, this language actually should park in our minds back to the creation account. In the creation account, when God created all things, he named the light daytime, and he the darkness he called night when he created the, the elements, the, the earth, the dry land, and the water. The dry land he called earth, the waters he called seas. Even in that creation account of God creating these things, he has named them. He created man and he named him Adam. God has the right over his creation, having determined its nature and fixed its nature. He names it to reflect what it is in truth. That's the idea. And then when Adam was given the commission to name all of the animals, that was a fulfillment of the dominion mandate that God gave to Adam. When God said to Adam in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was the dominion mandate. You were to rule over nature and over creation. And so Adam said to have been given this position, here's what you are to do. You are to name the animals. And God brought all the animals to Adam and he named them. Fixing their nature and fixing their name and establishing what they were, Adam did this. So the idea of something being named, whatever exists, has already been named. The idea here is that what already exists has been discovered, it has been named, it has been determined, and it is fixed, and it is unchanging. Now, does that sound like something else that we've read in Ecclesiastes? That's actually how Solomon began the book, back in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, for there is nothing new under the sun. And that's exactly what he was getting at. Nature is fixed. Nature and creation are not in this constant flux where it is always changing, and species are changing, and we're evolving, and we're progressing. But God created it, and he named it, and it is. And that is the way that it is. It has been established, it has been determined, it has been named, it is not changing, it is not evolving, is not progressing towards some other goal. God established these things and he is no longer creating any more things. Things are not being created. Things are not coming into existence. This creation is running down and things are dying off, not coming into being. So nature itself is fixed. And then he says at the end of, or the middle of verse 10, it is known what man is. Not only is creation fixed, but mankind is fixed. It is known. Who knows what man is? Ultimately, God knows exactly what humanity is like, right? And not only does God know it, but you and I know exactly what humanity is like. And is humanity improving? Is humanity getting better? Is humanity changing at all? No. It is known what man is. And this is not changing. And what has Solomon said about humanity for the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes? He has said that we are evil, that we oppress other people, that we steal other people's stuff, that we harm other people. He 
has said that we are foolish in our own human wisdom and our own human reasoning, that these, these things cannot bring us meaning and purpose. Solomon has said that we are fleeting, that our life is short, that one generation comes and another gener and a generation goes and the earth remains forever, but man just skips off this mortal coil. He has described us as being, as, as being empty and meaningless and vain. This is what humanity is. This is what we are like. And in the 3,000 years since Ecclesiastes was written, has anything changed about human nature? Anything at all? Nothing. Mankind is today exactly as he was 10 seconds after the fall, or at the moment of the fall. Mankind is the same today as he has been for 3,000 years, and in Solomon's time, we are the same as, we, as they were in Solomon's time. See, we're not progressing. We're not getting better. We're not getting smarter. We're not getting more wise. We're, we're not really even getting more knowledgeable, but we know more things. Yeah, and we've discovered a few things the generations before us have not, but if we improved at all, are we wiser than generations gone before? No, not really. Are, are we better, morally better? Are we less sinful than the generations gone before? No. Listen, we are not on a path of, of this progressive improvement towards some utopian ideal where we all sit around and gaze at our navels and quote poetry to one another and solve all the ills of humanity just by being in some centered mode of existence without hostility. That's not where mankind is headed. We're not progressing or improving. It is known what man is. It is fixed. So how does that, you can see how that sort of reflects the teaching of the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes, but how does it prepare us for wisdom? Well, if man is the same that he was in Solomon's day, if man is as lost as he has ever been, as evil as he has ever been, as self-centered as he has ever been, as hopeless as he has ever been, if mankind and the nature of all things is fixed, then we need wisdom today just as much as they did in Solomon's day, right? There, there is at no point in the future from Solomon's time that mankind would get to the point where we do not need to embrace divine wisdom. So because nature is fixed and because man is this way, it cannot be changed. Our hearts cannot be changed. Our hearts will not be changed apart from the grace of God and the work of God. And we are as ignorant and benighted and stupid as we have ever been. And so that is, therefore, we need wisdom. That's the point of that. Nature is fixed. And therefore, man needs the wisdom of God. That which exists or has been created will has already been named and it is known what man is. Now look at the second point. Resistance is futile. Not only is nature fixed, but resistance is futile. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. Who is the one who is stronger than us? Who is the one who is disputing? Well, that would be us. We cannot dispute with he who is stronger than we are. Who is the one who is stronger than we are? He's not talking about another human being or our peers. He's talking about God. Mankind, man, because he is fixed, you can't argue with God. That's Solomon's point. You're not going to dispute with him who is stronger than you. And God's the one who is stronger than we are. And so what is Solomon saying? You cannot argue with God about any of the things that he has talked about in the first six chapters. So you might be frustrated that, that you might be frustrated that a generation comes and a generation goes. Alright, so you can argue with God about that? You might be frustrated that satisfaction cannot be found as well. Are you going to argue with God about that? You might be frustrated with the way that things are. But who are you, old man, to argue against God? Would you change this? And, and all of the talking and the arguments that we might give in frustration with how things are are not going to change the way that things are because what exists has been named and we know what man is. And so all of the arguments that we present back to God, arguing with Him, we don't think that you have done it right. We don't think that work should be as toilsome as it is. We don't think that the curse upon mankind for sin in the garden is right and it's not just. We don't like the world the way it is set up to work. We want life without you. You can resist God, but you will not overcome God because you cannot dispute with Him who is stronger than we are. 
And so arguing with God is completely a useless endeavor. Because who are we to presume, or do we presume, that if we were as knowledgeable as God is, and were as mighty as God is, and were as wise as God is, that we would do things differently? Do you think you would? If you think you would, you're a fool. Because we have to confess that if we knew everything that God knows, and we were as wise as He is, and we were as good as He is, and as knowledgeable as He is, that we would do everything exactly as He has done. And so it does us no good to dispute with He who is stronger than we are. That is why Solomon says in verse 11, For there are many words which increase futility. But that is the advantage to a man. Right? All of our talking, the, the, the endless talking is just creating endless meaninglessness. All the arguments that we offer, God just proves them to be foolish. Job tried this tactic of arguing with God, right? At the end, he was silenced and hushed and shamed and, and humiliated into a silence. Because you cannot argue with God. And so, the more we multiply words, the more we multiply meaninglessness and futility. And Solomon is saying, after six hours of telling you all the ways in which this is futility, if we, continue, if we argue against God or with God about the way that things are, it's meaningless. It accomplishes nothing. What is the advantage to a man to continue to complain about things the way that they are? This is why Solomon is, is changing his focus just a little bit. So you can see how this you can see how this sums up the first six chapters. What does Solomon have in mind? All of the things that he has lamented. There has to come a point where you, you stop complaining about the way that things are and recognize that God has established it this way. We cannot dispute with him because he is stronger than we are. And if multiplying words just multiplies and adds to the futility and the meaninglessness of it all. And so how does that prepare us for the divine wisdom of chapter 7? Because it is not our goal or our job, nor is it wise, to argue against God about the way that things are. Instead, we must embrace divine wisdom concerning the way that things are. In other words, in our human wisdom, we would dispute with God, but that is not our calling. That is emptiness and futility. Instead, we ought to embrace the divine wisdom that God has revealed in His Word in chapter 7. So nature is fixed, resistance is futile, and third, life is short. Look at verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? During the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of Ecclesiastes, that sounds all familiar, doesn't it? Because all the way through this book, no matter what subject it is that Solomon has been addressing, he seems to have some reference somewhere to death. And that is, that is his whole point of creating the despair. No matter what it is, no matter what subject he has addressed, whether it is riches or inheritance or wisdom or knowledge or nature or whatever it is, pleasure, ultimately Solomon says it all ends in our death. And so we die, and all of the riches that we accumulate, they're gone. We die, and all of the knowledge we've gained is gone. We die and all of the experience we've had is gone. All of our accomplishments and the things that we have built, they're all gone. And so we are buried in the sands of time. Our accomplishments are lost in the sands of time. And eventually time passes and everything that we have done becomes less and less significant. 55.3 million people a year die. 150,000 people a day. 6,300 people every hour. This is how it has always been. And Solomon at no point even tries to escape that reality. And for the rest of the book, that reality is always there. We live, for we live our time in light of eternity, in light of the fact that we are going to pass off this, this world. And look how Solomon describes our life as a shadow. I cannot think of a more dismissive way of describing life than to call it a shadow. Can you? What is a shadow? Is it anything? A shadow is really nothing at all, is it? If you think a shadow is something, then tell me how much does a shadow weigh? 
How much mass does a shadow have? How much can a shadow lift? What does a shadow know? How much wisdom does a shadow have? How much work can a shadow do? Where can a shadow go? Shadows are nothing. And, I hate to say it, but so are the years of our lives. So are the days of our lives. They're short, they're futile, they're insignificant, and we pass off this moral coil almost unmissed. It's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Well, that's what we've been talking about for, for six chapters. I, I promised you that the gun-wrenching negativity was past us, but we're in the transition point. We'll get to something a bit more positive next week when we talk about death for the first four verses of chapter seven. But for now, <laughs> we haven't realized that we do live our lives here in light of the, our impending death. And this is the shadow that has hovered over all six chapters of, of the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes. So how does, then does that prepare us for the wisdom uh, for the wisdom that is to come in the following verses. Well, if our life is short, then we need somebody to tell us what it is that is good. That's why Solomon begins verse 12 with who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his life. I know what is good for a man during his lifetime. I know, I can answer Solomon's question, but not because of the wisdom of Jim Osmond, but because somebody else has spoken as to what is good for a man during the few years of his life. So that if we live our lives in the light of God's truth, embracing His wisdom, we can navigate life in a world that is marked by vanity and futility and emptiness under the shadow of our impending death. We know that we are cursed with sin and with evil. We know that what we do is vain and empty, and we know that we are destined for death. That is the perspective of life under the sun. But we need one whose perspective is not from under the sun, who can give us a divine perspective to show us that the things that we do in an eternal scheme, in his economy, are not empty and useless. And it is only if we live in light of that truth and embracing divine wisdom that we can see some significance to the things that we do in this life. So Solomon asked the question, who knows what is good? And then, by the way, for the next 14 verses in Ecclesiastes 7, he describes to us what is good. He uses the term better eight times in those 14 verses. As Solomon compares and contrasts two things, notice in verse 1, a good name is better than good wine. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man the living taken to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter from the face of sad and maybe happy. So he uses that term better. What is Solomon doing? He is pointing out to us the divine path of wisdom. This is the better way. He asks the question, who knows what is good for a man? There is one who knows, and he has revealed it. And if you embrace divine wisdom, you can walk in that path, which is better than the other path. And so he commends to us wisdom. That is how he's preparing us to receive the divine wisdom. So nature is fixed. Resistance is futile. Life is short. And the third one, the fourth one, I can't count. Number four, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? The future is unknown. The future is unknown. Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? A Solomon here is not describing, there's two things he's not describing. First, he's not describing the, the, the afterlife. He's not speaking in terms of heaven or hell or what might come. Notice the phrase under the sun. He's describing what is going to happen here in this world after you and I are gone. Nobody can tell us what is going to happen. Now you say, but God has revealed to us what happens regarding the future of nations and events and the kingdom to come and the rule of the sun, etc. Solomon is not describing, secondly, the grand scheme of redemptive history. He's talking about things that are more personal, uh, closer to you and I. What is going to become of you and your things when you leave? Nobody can tell you that. That's all his point. I use myself as an example. If I were to die this afternoon, can anyone here tell me which ones, if any, or how many of my children will get married, and whom they will marry, or when they will marry, or if they will have kids? 
when they will have kids. Will they be mostly boys or mostly girls or evenly split? Does anybody know that? What will become of what will become of all the books in my library? What will become of my wife? Will she remarry after I'm gone? Nobody knows that. What will become of all the books that I have accumulated in my library? What will become of all the toys in my shed? What will become of all the tools in my garage? Does anybody know that? What will become of my possessions? Nobody can know that for sure. All my children can kind of hover over top of it and, and drool on all of it, hoping to divvy it up in quarters, etc. But nobody really knows what's going to happen with those things. What will become of the books I've written? Will they be lost in history or will they go on and become multi-million dollar bestsellers and make millions of dollars for my wife and her future husband? What would happen? <laughs> things, right? The future, what, what might transpire under the sun is entirely unknown to us. The future is unknown. So how does that then, how does that then reflect or summarize the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes? Solomon has already lamented this. Back in chapter two, he says, I heap up things. And a man may heap up all these things in this world, and then doesn't know whether he's going to turn over to a wise son or a fool. Nobody knows that. He didn't know that. Solomon's staring at Rehoboam. I'm going to give the kingdom to Rehoboam. And I don't know whether Rehoboam's going to turn out to be a wise man or a fool. It's completely unknown. Or, Solomon says, a man may end up turning over all of his possessions to somebody who hasn't even labored for them. Who knows? Say, death is this, because death is there, there's this huge cloud of mystery involved with the death. We don't know what is going to transpire with those things which are ours and those people who are close to us. What shall become of the church I have served? What shall become of the sermons I have preached? What will, what will become of you, my friends, whom I love in Christ? What will become of you? Nobody knows that. Right? Death puts this mystery in all of life. And so what Solomon is trying to do is he's trying to drive us to the point where we are willing to live by faith and not by sight. And we are willing to trust a God who knows these things. We know, we know a God, and we have a God, to whom the future is not a mystery. And therefore, rather than relying upon our own understanding, we should rely upon Him and His understanding. So what Solomon has done in these three verses, he has summarized everything he said to us in the first six chapters, and he has prepared us to embrace the wisdom that he wants to offer to us in the last six chapters, which culminates in this one resounding statement, this is the whole duty of man, fear God and keep His commandments. So what Solomon is doing in Ecclesiastes, what Ecclesiastes does to human wisdom is the same thing that the law does, that the law of Moses does to human righteousness. So I want to give you a parallel. The law of Moses destroys human righteousness. See, mankind, we are tempted to think that we are good, that we are able to acquire righteousness on our own, that we can keep the Ten Commandments, that we can please God. We always evaluate ourselves in light of, of other people. We say, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as this guy. And I'm actually a pretty good person. I do a lot of good things. We tend to forget the bad things that we've done, remember all the good things that we've done. And so we start to trust in our own righteousness. We start to trust in our own goodness. And the law of Moses comes in and destroys that. We have the Ten Commandments that comes in and, and shuts the door on human righteousness so we can't even go down that path. And the Ten Commandments reminds us, no, I'm a liar, and I'm a thief, I'm a blasphemer, I'm a adulterer at heart, I'm a murderer at heart, and I haven't kept the Sabbath, and I haven't honored God, and I have not dishonored, I have not honored my parents, and I have coveted, and I have lied, I've done all of these things. I've broken all of the Ten Commandments in spirit, if not in letter, every last one of them. And so the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, crushes human righteousness. It crushes our desire to attempt so that we realize I, I am fallen and I need a Savior. And so rather than trusting in my own righteousness, the law makes me to trust in the righteousness of another. Ecclesiastes does this with human wisdom. Because man by nature tends to want to trust in himself. We do. And we want to trust in our own wisdom. 
and our own rationality. And we say to ourselves, I, we can figure this life thing out by ourselves. We, we can come up with what is right and what is wrong apart from any reference to God. And ask an atheist, they will tell you, we can determine right and wrong without any reference to God and His truth. We can reason our way to scientific enlightenment. We can reason our way to understanding life in this world. We can trust in our own human wisdom and our own human rationality and our own human knowledge. These things are enough for us. No thanks, God. We have got it all locked up all by ourselves. That is man in his natural state. And in comes the book of Ecclesiastes and destroys human wisdom. How does it do that? Because Solomon chases every single rabbit trail that we could possibly go down. And Solomon says, you think meaning and purpose can be found in pleasure? I've tried that. It will lead you to emptiness and futility and vanity. You think meaning and purpose can be found in human knowledge? It cannot. It leads you to emptiness, futility, and vanity. You think you can be found in human wisdom? Try that. You get emptiness, meaningless, futility, striving after it. You think the purpose of meaning can be found in riches, or in labor, or in work, or in mankind, or in the things that we do, or in the things that we accomplish, in the things that we experience, in the things that we know? We can every possible door, every possible avenue. Solomon has drug us down that path to show us that it leads us to despair. And so Solomon comes into Ecclesiastes and says, you want to trust in human wisdom? Trust in human knowledge? Ecclesiastes crushes that, shuts the door to us so that we can't even pursue it. Why? So that we might pursue divine wisdom. That is his point. He wants to drive us to despair so that we will embrace divine wisdom and that we might live our lives in the fear of God and obey him. Ultimately, Ecclesiastes should drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the personification of divine wisdom. Ultimately, it should do what the law does for us. It should turn us from seeking after our own righteousness or our own wisdom, and it should turn us to seek after the wisdom and the knowledge of one who is other than we are, because that is what we need. We need divine wisdom just like we need divine righteousness. And both of those things are found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Solomon has been trying to do. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for crushing all of our hopes of righteousness and our own goodness and our own good deeds. We thank you for the law which does that work in preparing our hearts that we might receive Christ and his righteousness freely and fully given to us in your Son. We thank you for that divine righteousness which is not ours. We thank you for the divine wisdom that you have given to us in your word. And we pray that we may despair of all attempts of understanding truth, of understanding knowledge, of understanding wisdom and life and meaning and purpose and eternity in light of human wisdom and human knowledge. And we seek and pursue that which comes from your hand in the pages of Scripture which you have given to us. Give us a thirst and a hunger for divine wisdom that we may pursue it and that we may love it and desire it more than gold, more than the finest of gold. May you be glorified in the hearts and lives of your people as we seek to do that in the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.